Matthew 11 and 12 is a series on Jesus's identity. And in this section, Jesus is making these extraordinary claims about who he is and what he came to do. And then there's tension about how people hear and receive and respond to those claims. And last week, we looked at kind of two ideas that Jesus claims that he's the friend of sinners and that he's the son of God, that God is his father. And kind of the orienting question was, all right, how would your life be different if you knew, like knew just deep down that Jesus was your friend? And we looked at the, the, the plague, the pandemic of isolation and loneliness and the way it's, it's permeating our entire society. So uh, we looked at that last week. So if that's something that resonates with you or interests you, you can check out the, the YouTube page or listen on the podcast if you missed that. What I wanted to do was talk about those two questions last week. If you knew Jesus was your friend and God was your father, but we only got through the first one. So here we're coming back to the father question. How would your life be different if you knew that God was your father? And I just thought, you know, there's some deep irony. I was going to say God was playing a joke on me, but I don't think God's petty like this and he doesn't do things. But there was some deep irony of me having to work on a sermon on the fatherhood of God in a week where Cynthia left last Sunday and was gone for the entire week. So I had multiple illustrations and opportunities to experience the gap between what I was looking at and what I was being. <laughs> and so there's just something disorienting about you're working on a sermon about God's fatherhood and his patience and love for us. And then you say things like, will you quit interrupting me? Can't you see I'm trying to write a sermon on God's fatherly patience? Um, and it just reminded me of the preacher who kind of fresh out of seminary, one of his first big sermon series um, that he was so proud of was 10 Commandments for Raising Godly Children. And he just thought it was brilliant, should be a book. And then about 10 years later, after kind of the first, his first foray into fatherhood, he came back to that same sermon series, but kind of softened it a little bit and kind of changed it to uh, five suggestions for raising godly kids. And then 10 years later, after the kids had gone through the teenage stage, he came back to that same sermon series and changed the title again. This time, uh, titled it, A Few Thoughts That Might Help, They Might Not. I have no idea. <laughs> and so there's a certain kind of a development where you become aware of, you know, deficiencies and a gap. And one of the things I was looking at a couple of weeks ago, just diving into the social kind of pandemic of loneliness and isolation, and then also connecting it to fatherhood thinking about how one of the great social crises of our age is, is the fatherlessness that we experience. And some of the stats are just, just jaw-dropping when you see the connection between um, poverty and drug and alcohol abuse and dropout rates in school and health and emotional concerns and criminality and the connection of fatherlessness. Um, even one of the studies I was looking at a couple of weeks ago, or uh, two weeks ago, research at the University of North Carolina, they're finding all these interesting correlations that they just don't, like there's a correlation, but don't know what it is. And it's just strange. Like things like there's a direct correlation between the, the BMI, the body mass index of the father and the children when there's no connection or seems to be no correlation at all between the mother. And then there's direct some correlation between the relational connections that the father has and then the children then have, the amount of friends. 
and a strange relational connection between the way the father facilitates sibling dynamics when they're young and the way the how close the siblings are when they're older, but seems to be no connection between the mom and just these strange things that they're trying to say this there's there's just these strange connections. And so what I want us to think about today is just right, kind of, in one sense, not kind of go down that, that social track, but just think, all right, how would my life be different if I knew that God was my father? And so Jesus celebrates this. So we're in Matthew chapter 11 and start with verse 25. It says, at this time, as I read through, I want you to notice, notice who Jesus is talking to. He's going to speak to God. He's going to speak to those right close to him. And then he's going to speak to kind of everyone. So at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. You've revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, that was your good pleasure, your gracious will, your good desire. Now, so he's talking to God. Now he's going to talk to those around him. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. And now comes to everyone, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A.W. Tozer's kind of famous book called The Knowledge of the Holy, he opens it up with this line that says, whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So have you ever thought about that? It's kind of mind-blowing. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God, that mental image. And one of the goals of, you know, studying the Word and going through it and kind of the goals of learning things like theology is to help us have a proper mental image when we think about who God is. I have a friend who teaches theology to undergraduate students. And kind of, as you can imagine, his class often isn't... um, Let's just say it's not the first one they sign up for when they're signing up for classes. And uh, often he hopes they don't assign it at eight o'clock in the morning because then nobody will sign up. But one of his things that he'll tell the undergraduates, like my goal in this class is to help you um, think things about God that aren't dumb and then help you say things about God that you're not lying. And so what, what do you think of when you think of him? And what's interesting is Jesus, like the first thing when he thinks about God, he thinks about a father. So this is my father. That's what comes to his mind. And so what I want us to do this morning is just kind of enter into that experience. And and we want to think about, all right, what do we need to experience or hear or understand so a healthy picture of God as father can come into our mind? And the two things I want you to to kind of hear, first, you got to hear the sound of Jesus's delight. And then you got to experience or kind of experience the silence of satisfaction, the satisfied silence. So there's a sound of delight and then there's a satisfied silence. So sound of delight. Did you notice, listen how Jesus is drawing you in to his delight in the Father, his love. He's drawing you into that love. He said, I praise you, O Father. I praise you. This is what you've done. You've, you've sent the Son and His ministry. The whole purpose of this section in chapter 11 is Jesus' ministry is, is alarming. It's kind of shocking. And people, even like John the Baptist, are wrestling and thinking, all right, are you the one to come or should we look for another? And they have doubts. And Jesus is celebrating the way God is unfolding His plan to bring about redemption. So He praises Him for it. And He says, this was your good pleasure. 
And so you gotta, gotta hear the, the celebration, the delight. Jesus wants to draw you into the Father's delight. This past November, we had a very dear family member uh, who passed away, and we call him our uncle, but technically he's not an uncle, really a, a cousin, but uncle seems more respectful than cousin. And at the funeral, my cousins uh, shared, and there was just this beautiful tribute. But one of the things they did is they talked about how their father had this, this tremendous delight in, in travel, and then had this tremendous delight, kind of unpacked all of that, the way he loved traveling, and then the way he loved uh, film, and, and, and you know, an amateur film critic, and love film, and then the way he loved, he was a lawyer, so the way he loved, uh, you know, fighting for legal justice, and, and taking on causes to, to fight for uh, the oppressed, and it was this beautiful tribute. But then kind of the, the turn at the end was my cousin revealed that actually he didn't like or love any of those things. Those were all the loves of his children that he entered into their love and entering into their love, it became his. He had three boys and those were actually things that it became his love because he entered into the love of another. And you think about how powerful that is. That's what Jesus wants you to do. He wants you, he's like, look, I want you to enter into the delight of another, enter into the delight of the father. And you know, one of the most potent, one of the most healing things in any relational dynamic is, do you find your delight in the delight of another? So maybe this past year through COVID, you've seen a lot of, it's put stress on a lot of relationships so maybe you really felt the fractures of those relationships. You know, one way to pour in, I don't know, I'm trying to think of the architectural analogy. What do you pour in when foundations are cracking? Whatever building material you pour into those things, the relational material you can pour in is delight, finding your delight in their joy. My joy is found in your joy. My delight in your delight. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He wants to draw you in to the Father's delight. And you know, one thing, what church tradition at its best is meant to pass on from one generation to the next, the delight of the father, who the, what, what the father loves, kind of the family joys, it gets passed along. Actually, as you think about like church history, one of the helpful things, one of the ways I like to think about it is almost like this, uh, this big family that's been around, you know, if you think, all right, a generation is 30, 35 years, then Jesus's family is in about, you know, generation 57. We're roughly generation 57. You can all right, tell them the story. Then you can go through church history. And, you know, some of the people we think, you know, like Augustine and John Chrysostom, they're like generation 10. And other people we think are so long ago, like Martin Luther and John Calvin, that's generation 45. And Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, that's generation 50. You know, we're just in 57. You know, one thing I was teasing Cynthia when she talked about the throwback songs. I was like, throwback? Those are the 90s. That's not throwback. I graduated high school in 1997. That's now. We call this a now service. Like, you want throwback? Let's talk like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That was first written in the 8th century. That's throwback. You know, you have things like one in churches, they'll debate about, you know, like people ask, do you sing traditional hymns or contemporary hymns? And what's interesting is most of the things we think of like traditional actually came around in like generation 53 and things we think are contemporary are generation 55. They're both contemporary. And so you think about just generations. You can think about some of the things that you really value in church. It's an interesting thing. All right, when 
in the timeline did we actually start doing that? You know, certain things like youth ministry that's just seen as like essential, like that didn't exist till generation 56. And so you think, all right, how do you put this in larger context? That's what generation or that's what tradition is meant to do in a good sense is to pass on from one generation to the next the things that the father loves. What does he love? What does he cherish? And, you know, you think about it, just as any father, you know, the greatest legacy you can leave to your children is a legacy of the things you love and prize and cherish. And that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to draw you in to that delight. You know, this we got all types of obvious illustrations where I felt like I was uh, fumbling and failing as a father. But yesterday, I have to brag, I need this emotionally. So yesterday, it was Annabelle's birthday. And the way we celebrate birthdays, one of the things we do is on your birthday, you get to pick what we eat, the meal, you know, the family meal. It's, it's your choice. And so for Annabelle's birthday, she comes in in the morning and says, all right, Annabelle, what, what do you want today? Anything you want, you name. And she said, Daddy, all I want is bacon and birthday cake. And I thought, I, I love you. I, have, I, I am succeeding as a father in some way. Bacon and birthday cake. You pass on the things you love somehow. And so Jesus is drawing us in to, to he wants to draw us into um, his delight in God. But the next thing we have to feel, if you're going to feel that God is your father, is also feel God's delight in us. You know, this past week, I returned to a classic of Christian spirituality. It's John Owen's Communion with God. And he talks about the unique way you can have communion or a healthy relationship with each member of the Trinity, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I was really just shocked or pleasantly surprised as he talked about the primary way we're supposed to relate to God the Father is as a relationship with love, to be filled with love for him and his love for us. He says, I mean, that's what God is. First John 1, uh, 4, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is who he is. And you think about Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, when he's given that kind of the benediction, he, he wants to celebrate. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus, but the love of God, the father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, love of the father. And he says, you know, the, you know, the greatest need we have is to enter in and experience that love of the father. He says we have to receive it by faith because sometimes it's hard to believe it. I mean, we, we might believe that God could love someone else, but not us. But then once we receive it, we respond with gratitude and thankfulness in return. He says kind of the way it works. You have God the Father and his love flows down to us. God the Father, we have us. And in the middle is Christ and his love flows from the Father through Christ to us. Then our love flows back up to him through Christ back to him. And so it comes through Christ and goes back up. And I was really struck by this one line because he says that many saints have no greater burden in their lives and that their hearts do not constantly delight and rejoice in God the Father, God their Father. And so I think, you know, in one sense, that's a kind of thing the preachers say, you know, you have no greater burden than, you know, your greatest burden is that you're not living in the light of, of God's love for you. And so, all right, that's the kind of thing we say, you know, maybe it's hyperbolic, you know, maybe Owen was living in this kind of idyllic time where, you know, life wasn't as complicated. I mean, of course, they didn't have the disintegration from like social media or global pandemics or political upheaval or social unrest. His time surely was just an easier time where they could, you know, plant turnips and pray and do that kind of thing. But actually, I started looking at the timeline when John Owen wrote this. 
It's actually one of the most, most tumultuous times in all of English history. Just after the um, restoration of King Charles, so kind of like what's going on in his life politically is he was at the forefront of the, um, the overthrow and the murder of King Charles I. Actually preached a sermon after his execution. That whole political regime had just come collapsed. Charles II had come back in with a vengeance, had a list of all the people that needed to be murdered, all the traitors, took those people and the way they executed them is they hung them but didn't kill them. Then they drawn, hung, drawn, and quartered. Drawn means you'd be split down the middle. Quartered, you'd be cut in four. Your body parts would be hung at different entrances into London and left for 25 years. Every single time he walked through any of the gates in London, he would have seen body parts of murdered friends. And then, so that's what's going on politically. And then you think, all right, what's going on in his life um, for career? You know, before all of this, he was the chancellor of Oxford. So the top academic position in all of Oxford University, he had lost that. He was in hiding. He was leading a church of about 30 people. I think what's going on in his life uh, with his family at this point in his life, he's already preached a funeral sermon of his first wife and eight of his 10 children. And then you think socially or kind of socially what's going on just a few years before that was the bubonic plague where nearly a third of England died. And so when he says the greatest birth, so he's not talking like in any sense, he wasn't living in an easier time. You know, we talk about the unprecedented times like, well, I mean, things have been worse in many other places. And so when he tells them that the greatest burden they have is they're not living uh, in the reality of God's love for them. He's not speaking, you know, hyperbolically. He understands how if you don't have this, you can't survive these kind of seasons. So you have to experience uh, this. So is this something you experience? Do you find this that it's hard to believe God's love for you. If we're going to enter into that, we have to enter into the delight and then experience God, Jesus' delight in God and then God's delight in us. But notice here, the second thing is you also have to know just the satisfied silence. Notice what Jesus promises. Why do you think, and we'll return to this next week because I think it's so important, but why do you think the ultimate promise is a promise of rest? Come to me, all you who are weary burdened, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What is the connection between having a healthy relationship with God the Father and rest? Why do you think that is? You think, all right, come to God the Father and he's going to give you a task. He's going to give you a job. He's going to give you responsibility. He's going to give you, come, come to me and what you ultimately get is rest. So what type of things will it bring to, to rest in him? How would you find rest? You know, a couple of things that if you can really settle into this knowledge of God as our fathers, things you'll have less of. You know, one thing is you'll have less worry. You think about worry and anxiety for a minute. You know, there's a lot of things that fuel worry and anxiety. You know, some of it's chemical, some of it's situational, some of the many different things. But sometimes it's fueled because of our own pride because we believe we know how our life should go and God's obviously not getting it right. And so it fuels our anxiety. You know, Martin Luther with his good friend, Philip Melanchthon, one of the things he would often tell him because he was, he was a very tightly wound, anxious person. And uh, one of his lines, he would often say, uh, let Philip cease to rule the world. 
and stop trying to rule the world. So much of our anxiety can be channeled because we're not resting in the fact that God is our Father. He's in charge. We have to trust Him to, to lead us and provide for us and prepare for us. So if you really knew that, in many ways, you'd have less worry. You know, another thing you'd have is less irritability. There'd be a certain settledness. You know, Psalms 130, who says if, you know, if God was to keep track or to mark iniquities, who could stand? But with the Lord, there's forgiveness so that he might be feared. And one of the things, if you really know that he's your father and you know that his love is upon you, it makes you less uh, irritable. You're not so easily irritated, not as grouchy, not as grumpy, not as unhappy. You can rest in that. And kind of leading to that, it makes you less defensive. You don't have to constantly kind of prove yourself or defend yourself. You don't feel isolated or all alone in a cold and cruel world. You know you're under the shadow of provision and protection. So you have less defensiveness. You often kind of with that have less complaining. You know, there's a remarkable back and forth when Jesus is standing trial before Pilate. You know, Pilate is, is, is trying to uh, cross-examine him and get him to talk and defend himself. And that's kind of the basics of the, the legal, you know, back and forth is you'd have to stand and articulate your defense. You didn't really have lawyers to, to do it for you. And notice that, like Jesus's posture in that uh, legal back and forth. I mean, in one sense, Pilate has all earthly control over Jesus. And he even tells them, you know, I can determine whether you live or not. And like, how does Jesus respond? Is he anxious? Is he irritable? Does he cower? Does he say, oh, you're, you're about to ruin my life. You can't do this. I'm innocent. All of these things. Uh, Jesus actually tells him, you have no power over me except what my father has given you. Why do you think he says that? Isn't that amazing? You actually have no power at all except the power that's come from my father who I know is actually in control of this situation. And that tremendous poise, that tremendous confidence means that in any situation, you say, right, even in this situation, I'm hurting, I'm scared, I'm anxious. I know the person who is in charge of this whole show, and it is my father. I know my father is authoring something, and even though I may be hurting, in the end, I'm going to trust him that he's doing what's good, what's right, that he loves me. And that type of poise can only come from resting in the fact that God is your father. So you think about that line from A.W. Tozer, the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And so when you think about God as father, what do you think about? You know, it's true, and one of the things we celebrate each week that, you know, on the cross, the justice and wrath of God was satisfied by the work of the Son, and we, we celebrate that. But I do think that can, you know, we can get a um, misconception that kind of God is the angry disciplinarian, and Jesus is kind of the loving one, and they kind of play good cop and bad cop. Of each other. But that's, that's not the image. The image of the Father who so loves the world that He gives, He sends His only Son. And a son who gladly takes that burden upon him to open up a way so many people can come feast in the presence of the Father and come to his table. You know, Paul, when he celebrates this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 3, and he's celebrating God the Father. He celebrates, this is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. So when you think about God as Father, do you think about one who's the Father of all mercies? 
and how every act of mercy in some resemblance in any way is a family resemblance of who he is. You know, mercy is his default dis, uh, disposition. Judgment is necessary, but it's not central. The default disposition is love and mercy. So you think about, all right, how do we think about God as Father? You know, it's, it has to be. It's just inevitable that it's shaped by our own experiences as fathers or with our Father. And so some of us were blessed with just wonderful, wonderful dads who were a, a reflection. And if that was you, you can be thankful because every good thing you saw is a, a faint kind of pointer or reflection of the true goodness of your heavenly father. But then there's many people who didn't have that experience. You know, some were abandoned by their father. Some were mistreated. But every bad thing that you ever experienced from your father expressed as a father in some sense is a photo negative of what our heavenly father is. It's presenting the opposite. So how would you be different today if you knew deep down that God was your father? You know, the beauty of the gospel and the beauty that we celebrate each week at communion is that Christ is our mediator. He's the one who comes in between. He's the one by which the love of the father comes down to us. And he's the one by which our joy and praise and thankfulness and gratitude go back up. So if you have your, your, your cup and your bread, you know, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and broke it. And the symbolism of the broken body is that this body is, is broken so you can be made whole again. You know, I am a, what sin does is sin causes the relationship between the sons and the daughters and the father to be broken. So he says, my body will be broken so that relationship can be put back together again. So every week when we eat the bread, we take and eat, and we're reminded of the restoration of that relationship that can be ours through faith and forgiveness. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood of the new covenant. So a new standing with the family, a covenants, an inheritance, a way to come in and you can have access and you have gifts and privileges. And it's the, the forgiveness of sins that brings you into this family. So take and drink in remembrance of me. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the power of his grace and his gospel. He can bring us into your family and restore our relationship with you. And we can be made new as sons and daughters. So we pray now that you ask, or we ask that we, we would all experience that life-giving, life-settling reality that that truth would come home into our hearts in such a way where we have so much less worry and anxiety and irritability and defensiveness where we can just rest and be settled. And then I ask that you help us. I pray for all of us who have the, the calling to be fathers here in this world. I pray that you help us, help us realize that everything we do for better or worse is reflecting um, something of who you are. So help us. Um, we ask that you give us the grace to love well, to serve well, to, to provide the stability and the structure and the safety and the comfort that you provide us. Pray for those of us who have anyone in this room who's had a fractured, broken relationship with their father. And maybe he's already passed on in that relationship um, might never be restored. We pray that you would restore and heal any hurts that are there, or if there's any reconciliation that needs to take place, we ask that you would uh, give us the strength 
to follow, uh, follow you and do that. But we thank you for the tremendous gift that good fathers are, and we thank you for the unspeakable gift that your son is to us. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the grace of God the Son, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of God the Spirit be with yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.